Uh, good morning, church. been the heck of a start to Sunday. All right. You know the more opposition you face that you're heading in the right direction. They say that Christmas is the day that holds all time together. And we're still talking about Christmas because it's still Christmas time. We're continuing our Christmas Advent teachings. Of course, it's all about Jesus. There's no Christmas without Christ. Christmas wouldn't even exist without Jesus, since the only reason this holiday is even here. Right, it's Merry Christmas. You know, they've been trying to take Christ out of Christmas for a long time. Remember when Xmas was a popular thing? And, uh, and then a bunch of, you know, uh, how would you say it? Uh, smart book-worthy, studied uh, Christians who understood what X meant in Greek and how it referred to Christ said, ah, ha, 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 you can call it Xmas, but what, it real, what you're really saying is Christmas because X refers to Jesus. And here's, the, here's how we can show you that X refers to Jesus. And you notice how Xmas kind of disappeared? <laughs> and you don't really have Xmas anymore? What do they say now? Like you said, they say happy holidays, Right? And you go into a store and you're going to buy, you're buying something and they're like, you know, they're, they're all dressed in their Santa gear up there and wearing their hats at the, at the registers and they're like, happy holidays. And what do you say in return? You say, Merry Christmas, right? I tell people over the phone, I said, Merry Christmas. We had someone who, an older gentleman who at our store was trying to buy a new lens. It was a couple thousand dollar lens and uh, he had special ordered it, and it came in, and we called him and 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 tried to get a hold of him, and over and over, and he never responded, and and uh, so eventually we just passed the lens on to the next person he, uh, in line who's who's waiting for the lens, and of course, as soon as you do that, what happens? They they call you, right? So as soon as you do that, they call you, and they're like, oh, what's going on? I just got notification that my deposit was refunded, and how come I didn't? I said, well, we tried for three weeks, right, to get a hold of you. Oh, man. You know, I was living in this retirement home, and I don't really get my messages and stuff like that. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll put you back in the book, and uh, I'll, I'll move you up front, and I'll get to you first. And I said, you know, I said, you know they're coming in better, and uh, you'll probably see one within the next month. Okay, oh, next month. Okay, man, sorry I missed it. That same day, uh, we got an order in, and you know, like hours later, I had one for him. I wasn't expecting it that fast, but hours later I had one for it. So what did I do? I called him up. What did I say? I said, Merry Christmas, <laughs> right? <laughs> Guess what I have for you? I have your lens. It's Christmas because it's about Christ. And Christmas is a miraculous time because the birth of Christ was a miraculous event. So last week, last Sunday, we taught from Isaiah 9-2, stating that Jesus was the light that shone in the darkness. If you remember, Isaiah 9-2 said, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That's Jesus. Right? Jesus is the light of the world. So we celebrate Christmas because Jesus was born to take away the sin of the world. Jesus was born to set us free, as we just sang about. Jesus was born to liberate us from sin and bondage. Jesus was born for our salvation. Isaiah 61, which is a verse that Jesus himself quoted, 
Right? It says, the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's what the birth of Jesus is about. The purpose of his birth was his death and his resurrection. And through that, through his grace and through our faith, we have been brought out of darkness into light. Right. We've been born again. And if you want to think of it that way, because like 1 John 4, 9 tells us that in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. What's that referring to? It's referring to the incarnation and his birth, right? That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So if you want to think of Christmas that way, think about it this. Jesus was born so that you could be born again. Right. So this morning, we're going to read from Luke. We're in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and it's a real short little section. It's not the entire Christmas story, and by the, and by the way, you know, if you hadn't thought of it this way before, we always refer to it as the Christmas story, but it's not really a story, it's a fact. It actually happened, it's historical. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his hometown. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit speak to us. And I pray, Lord, that, that you are with us this morning, that we feel your presence, and that you, you take these words, Lord, and you, you guide us with them, you shape us with them, you mold us with them. And you place them in our heart too that we can continue to grow into you, Lord. I thank you for this. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. My title for today's message is, oh, I didn't even put it up. You have no idea, do you? Maybe I should, uh, boom, right? Let every heart prepare him room. And of course, it comes from the song we just sang, Joy to the World. Christmas is a day to worship the birth of a king, right? The king of kings, God incarnate. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis, and it's really kind of interesting, referring to Christmas and referring to the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. And C.S. Lewis says that the incarnation is the central miracle asserted by Christians, Right, when God became man. Because every other miracle prepares you for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. Another way to look at it is the entire Old Testament points to the birth of Christ. And the entire New Testament is the result of the birth of Christ. It all centers around the birth of Jesus. And the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, like I said, is miraculous. It's, it's wondrous. It's, it's, a, it's hard for us in our humanly, you know, 
our human brains that don't even work most of the time anyway and haven't even woken up, you know, until noon, that uh, for us to wrap our heads around the idea of God becoming man, right? Being born a baby, being born of a virgin, right? God the Son becoming human without ceasing to be God. It wasn't that he just appeared in human form because he had appeared in human form in the Old Testament, right? Christophanes, but he wasn't fully man. He was just God appearing in a human form. But here he was appearing in human form, but he was fully human. He was blood, skin, and bones. And yet at the same time, he was fully God. Right? As it says in Philippians you know, chapter 2, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's referring, to, of course, to his incarnation. So his humanity, his humility, his sovereignty, his deity, they're all present at the birth. At his birth. I mean, the three wise men brought him frankincense, gold, myrrh. Which all point to the purpose of his birth and who he is. But there's another thing that his birth shows us. right? Another thing that his birth shows us. In a small way, his birth, maybe in a big way, I don't know, it depends on how you look at it. But it, his birth is... Uh, symbolic or it's foreshadowing a struggle or if you will or an attitude that Jesus would come up against during his incarnation and an attitude that's still present today what do I mean by that what's the attitude right well the attitude was there was no place for him in the end now there's many different ways that we can we can look at this. One, there's the, the actual physical, you know, literal event that happened. There was, you know, the census. And Joseph and, and Mary had to go to Nazareth because that's the town, of course, that Joseph's from because he's from the house and the lineage of David. And you can look at the genealogy in Matthew 1, for example. <coughs> right? And see that he's from the line of David. Let me get a drink of my tea. And of course, he had to go back to, to his hometown to be registered, to be part of the census. And of course, it's all booked up. <laughs> he gets there, and everything's booked. There's no place for him. They don't, they don't get the fancy hotel, right? There was no comfort of an inn for them, right? No silk sheets, no comfy bed, no big pillows, right? No shower, no cable TV. They didn't get any of that stuff because when they came into town, everything was full, there was no vacancies. And she's about to give birth, right? You'd think someone would be like, oh man, she's pregnant, about to give birth. Here, I've got a place for you. But no, there was no room. There was no room. And so she had to give birth. And most people will say, well, it was in the stable and they laid Jesus in the manger. You know, who knows? It might've been a stable, but it was more than likely a cave, right? And the manger was more than likely a rock trough of some sort. It might not have been wood, I know. You know, blasphemy, holy cow, right? Might not have been wood, but, but regardless, you know, she had to give birth to Jesus in, not in the comfort of an inn, but instead in these unsanitary conditions, 
you know, amongst the sheep and the goats and the little drummer boys of Bethlehem. And so, and so that's kind of a picture of this attitude or of this um, uh, struggle, if you will, concerning the coming of Jesus, which is nobody's prepared for him. Nobody's prepared for him and nobody has room for him. Even when he was just a baby. Right? But that's not when it actually started. It didn't actually start then. Right? Because Jesus, yes, he was born into a chaotic, divided, broken, sinful, confused world. That's what the world was like when he was born. And that's what the world like even more so today. So he was born into this world. Right? So it shouldn't really be any surprise to us that, you know, the son of God, God, the son, his incarnation being born into a fallen world, into a sinful world, that there would be no room for him. Who wants God? We're not ready. We don't want God. We've got our own lives, right? There's never going to be a vacancy. There's never going to be room at the end when everyone's hearts are far from God. But like I said, it started way before Jesus' birth. Because we can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We can go all the way back, right, to the very first gospel, to the very first promise of Messiah in the garden, after the fall of man, right? Thousands and thousands of years before he was born. And you're going to find out from then, right, there was no room in the end. Not if Satan had anything to say about it. There was going to be no room in the end, right? The, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your feet and you shall bruise his heel. Once that prophecy, once that promise was stated, but even really the struggle, I mean the spiritual struggle, it started before that. But once that was stated from that moment on, guess what? No room in the end. No room in the end for God. No room in the end for Jesus. Hearts, right, turned in evil. Satan started attacking those who were created in the image of God. Sin abounded. The disease spread and spread and spread. I mean, very few people had a heart prepared to give him room. You didn't. You didn't have a heart prepared to give him room before you became a Christian. There's actually... I don't know if you want to say it's ironic or what's the word you want to use, but the truth is you never can actually prepare your heart for Jesus. There's nothing you can do physically short of just proclaiming with your mouth that Jesus is the son of God and giving your life to Jesus. There's nothing you can do physically prepare your heart for Jesus because it's a supernatural thing that happens through the spirit of God to prepare you for Jesus. Matter of fact, the interesting thing is, because when we talk about preparation, you know, I'll get into this in a second, but what do we think about? Getting the house prepared for someone visiting? Think about, like as if someone tells you, hey, we're coming, we're coming to visit for Christmas, we're going to be there a couple weeks, right? What do you do? You start getting the house ready, you start cleaning the house, you get in spare room and the sheets done, right? We're going to Texas in January to visit Julie's parents and she'll be getting the spare rooms all cleaned up, you know, oh, they're coming to visit, they're coming to visit, right? You get everything prepared for them when they come. I mean, that's what we think about when we're prepared. But the truth is that in the mess of your life, in the darkness of your life, in the sin that you were bound in, you weren't prepared for Jesus. There's no way for you to prepare for Jesus. You couldn't have cleaned it up if you needed to. And yet Jesus came anyway. And he's shown in the midst of your life 
And then when you accepted Jesus, that's when the cleanup started. That's when the preparation, Jesus started moving stuff around and chucking stuff out the window. And you don't need this anymore, right? You've been hanging on to this too long. Woo, let's get rid of that, right? That's when the work started. So that's kind of like the interesting aspect of the wall. Because we talk about, come, let us prepare our hearts. Let's prepare right, for, for the coming of Jesus. Let's every heart prepare him room. Well, the truth is, when we sing that song, he's actually not so much talking to unbelievers as he's talking to believers. He's talking about believers preparing your heart. Why do we have, well, wait a minute, we're believers, we're Christians, why do we have to prepare our heart? Why do we have to pre- prepare our heart to make him room? Didn't we already do that? Haven't we already done that? Well, yes, you have. Right? There's a thing you have to remember. One of the other reasons for Jesus' birth, we talked about it somewhat last week, but I'm going to bring it up again. Right? Jesus was born to destroy the works of the devil. He was. It tells us that in 1 John 3, 8. For the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's a spiritual battle. Right? It's Jesus against the powers of darkness. Right? Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Right? Against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. Also, Revelations 12, for example. Revelations 12, 4. says, And the dragon, which is Satan, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. See, Satan's been trying to mess this thing up since before Jesus was born. He's looking to do the same with your life as well. Even though you've given your life to Christ doesn't mean that Satan's not going to attack you. Satan's not going to give you mornings like we've had today. Like, like a battery dead in our van again, stuck in the garage. Julie had to get a, a ride to church, right? Merry Christmas to me. I get to go get a new battery for the car. Looking forward to it. You know, those type of things. We all know what we're talking about. We have those days. You've been through them. Every appliance in your house breaks down at once the same week. You're like, what's going on? But I always feel like the more we get attacked, the more we must be heading in the right direction. Because if we weren't, why, what's the attack about? What's the spiritual warfare? So that the thing is, is that we have to remember about this, even for us as believers, is it's a spiritual battle. Satan was trying to stop the birth of Jesus all through the Old Testament, right up to his birth and even after his birth. He's trying to stop the promised Messiah. That's why we have Herod, you know, killing all the children in Matthew chapter 2. And it doesn't matter how many children there were. It doesn't matter if there was only one. It's a tragedy. It's terrible. Right? They call it the massacre of innocence, right? And which it was a satanic attempt to thwart God's plan and stop biblical prophecy from being fulfilled. Of course, Herod failed, Satan failed in the sense that they didn't kill Jesus, but they killed a whole bunch of other boys, right? And so within that, within their failure, all these innocent children were murdered and it adds, of course, to the misery and it adds, of course, to the sin of the world to see this kind of massacre happen and Bethlehem. But Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about you. He's not concerned about your feelings. 
Right? He's just a lion prowling around looking to devour. He's a thief looking to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't care. He's way worse than Burgermaster, Meister Burger, or whatever that guy is in the, in the Christmas things. He's, you know, of course, he's way worse than that. We know this. Right? So there are two truths here. When we talk about let every heart prepare him room, there's two truths here. And one is this, you live in a world that has not made room for Jesus and is not going to make room for Jesus if Satan has anything to say about it. It's a, it's a spiritual battle, right? It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, and that the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they don't understand the truth of the gospel. So why on earth would they be preparing a room for him? Why on earth would you expect your neighbors, if they don't believe in Christ and don't believe in the word of God, to even think about making room for Jesus on Christmas? It's a ridiculous thought. They're not going to do it. Right? Satan's deceived people. He has them worshiping false gods. He has them following false gospels. He has people cluttering up their lives with just nonsense. And he has them fighting against God's word and fighting against God. And, that's, and, and they think they're being righteous in doing so. Self-righteous. Because there is no room for Jesus in the counsel of the wicked. And we live in a wicked world. We also have to remember, of course, that Jesus is the only one who can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. It can only, it's a supernatural event. So that's how those who have no room for Jesus, who have never even thought about giving Jesus an inch in their life, can come to Christ. Right? Through your prayers and through your petitions and through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. That's how it can happen. But we have to, be under, we have to understand the truth, which is, is that we live in a, in a world that's not made room for Jesus and doesn't plan to. And it's getting even more so as the day goes on, right? Romans 1. It's just getting crazy, right? So they're fighting against God and his word. But listen, their fight is futile because Christ is victorious. We've read the end of the book. We know how it ends, right? He was victorious in his birth. He's victorious in his death and his resurrection. So they're mocking God. They're fighting against God. But if this is what God says, Right? Matter of fact, this is sort of his response to their mocking. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's God's response. Listen, you guys better be paying attention because. My wrath is coming. My wrath is coming. And blessed are those who take refuge in God. And if you aren't taking refuge in God, if you don't have your faith in Jesus, then you are on the wrong side of things. Right? You could say, blessed are those whose hearts prepare him room. Right? The second truth is this, because remember, it's really talking to believers, 
And you're like, well, but I prepared him real. I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. I prepared him real. I cleaned out the little mother-in-law apartment. He moved right in. Right? Think about preparing for Christmas. You know, often when we think of preparing for Christmas, it's, you know, getting the tree up and getting the lights on the house and getting all the presents bought and wrapped and under the tree and getting the Christmas cards mailed or at least handed out, right? Got a whole bunch of cards over here to hand out. Last second, you're like, we're printing up cards and putting them in envelopes. Got to hand out Christmas cards. Right? And except we know I get fewer and fewer cards each year, I think everybody is ditching the idea of Christmas cards. I'm going to start a Christmas card revival. But there's never enough time to do everything, and there's just lots of stuff to do, specifically at Christmas time, where everything's amplified even more. Right? And it always comes down to the midnight hour, right? Late Christmas Eve, after the kids have gone to bed, if they ever go to bed, right? You're out there, you're, you're trying to finish up wrapping and placing stuff under the, under the tree and, you know, organizing and cleaning the house and laying out the stockings and, you know, you're trying to do the whole Christmas feng shui thing. You're trying to get it all properly. Okay, you know, you're neatly organized and displayed and laid out. Some people might think that you're, you know, Joanna Gaines doing a little the Magnolia home thing with your Christmas tree and everything like that. I mean, you're doing this late Christmas Eve or early Christmas morning, depending on, you know, the times, because some of you I know never sleep. But, you know, they say it's the, the, the average American spends uh, six weeks preparing for Christmas, which I think is wrong. However, I do know it takes at least a week to get all the, like, the lights up pr- properly around your house and and stuff like that, if not longer. But I think six weeks is kind of short. Because, I mean, we know Christmas stuff starts showing up in stores and before Halloween, so it's showing up at least two months or two and a half months before Christmas. So that means people are preparing for Christmas two and a, at least two and a half months before Christmas. But I say it's six months. I say that, I say that as soon as school is done, you're marking your, your holiday stuff down on the calendar. Christmas party, Christmas Eve, you know, candlelight service, New Year's Eve, white elephant party, get it all laid out on the calendar. This is what we're doing. You're writing that stuff. You should be, anyway. Writing that stuff down on your calendar. School, as soon as school is out for the summer, right, you start preparing. And some of you will start preparing for next Christmas, December 26th. So, some of you will. I know this is true. Or maybe right after New Year's. So Christmas preparation is just the hustle and the bustle and the daily grind of the holidays. And, and you know, I mean, we're not completely prepared for Christmas yet. I mean, Julie and I don't even have a day off together. So we're going to be taking like this next Friday, which is like, what, the 22nd? We're going to finally go out Christmas shopping. Not that we need to go Christmas shopping, right? Who, who actually goes out Christmas shopping anymore? It's Amazon. Dude, dude, dude. Just right to your house, you know. But anyway, you know. So, you know, who's prepared? But, so, the preparation is just this. The idea of Christmas preparation is just this chaotic thing. The hustle and bustle. But, you know, I'm going to tell you that it's all useless. It's all useless. It really is. Especially when you compare it to eternity. But, why is it all useless? Well, this is why. Because, they, you know, they say that it's about 90%, I think it's 90%, 90% of Americans celebrate Christmas. It sounds good. I don't know, you know, but it sounds good. 
But then they say a third of them, a third of them will gladly admit that all the time, they spend more time preparing for Christmas and for the holidays than they actually do relaxing and enjoying Christmas. Right? Because what's that? That's one day. Christmas is December 25th. And we do all this preparation for the one day, I mean, six months of preparation, pulling our hair out and getting everything perfect for the family and the coming families that are visiting and, and the kids, because everything's got to be perfect for the kids. You don't want to let the kids down and, and it, for one day. And then you don't even get to sit down and enjoy it and relax it. By the time you sit, you sit down and enjoy or relax, it's New Year's, right? And then you just fall asleep on the couch anyway because of all the energy that you spent getting yourself prepared. You don't have any energy to actually enjoy the tea or whatever, the cup of coffee. You sit down, boom, you're out, right? And that's it. You're gone. And that's a waste of Christmas. It really is. And I'm not knocking Christmas because I love it. It's my favorite holiday. But you see the picture? Christmas is about worshiping Jesus. And we spend so much time preparing for it that we don't actually get to enjoy the blessings of Christmas. Right? You can't enjoy the gifts. You can't enjoy the fellowship. You don't get to enjoy the time because you spent so much time preparing for it. You don't get to rest, relax, and enjoy what Jesus has for you. But guess what? That's not just at Christmas. That's your life, if you're to be honest. That's your life. This is, we spend all our life, all our time preparing for tomorrow, right? Preparing our kids, trying to make everything perfect down to the little speck of dirt or dust on the floor, right? That we never actually rest. We never actually relax. We never actually get the time to enjoy the blessings that the Lord has lavished upon us. And that's what it tells us in Ephesians, that he has lavished these blessings on us. And we don't even get the time to really enjoy them because we spend all our time preparing for tomorrow. I mean, we received it with joy. When we became a Christian, good news, right? We received the good news with great joy. It was all great to start with. Right? But then, right, life has gone on and now it, the joy is being choked out by everything that you have going on. Right? And some of the things that you have going on are great things. They're, they're great things. But that's just to show you that it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle because the one who wants to choke out the joy and the blessings that you have from Christ is Satan. And Satan's trying to just keep you busy, trying to keep all these things just flying in so that you, you know, that your life is just busy. It's, it's, you, you don't have time to rest. You don't have time to relax. You don't have time to enjoy the joy that comes with being a Christian, right? Satan wants you to fall away. So then it gets like this. And I thought of this illustration and, and I'm just letting you know, I'm, you know, I just, I don't have any experience when I speak about this. Okay. This does not come from experience. All right. I say jokingly. So say that you get married 
right? And you buy a house. It's your first house together as a couple. It's a nice little 1,300 square foot, you know, quaint little house, open floor plan, three bedrooms, two baths. You're like, yeah, this is perfect for me and the wife. It's a great little house. Then you have a kid. Then you have another kid. Then you have another kid. Then you get three cats. I'm not speaking from personal experience here. Don't. And that 1,300 square feet house is now starting to feel a little smaller than it did when you first bought it. Right? And the kids start growing up. They were this tall, and now they're this tall. And you don't know how it happened. Because it was just yesterday that you swear that you just moved in. And they need more things, and you need more things. And before you know it, that 1,300 square foot home now feels like a 500 foot square foot box, right? And you're like, I, don't, I barely have room to move. I can't even put up the Christmas tree. What's going on, right? And all your favorite stuff that when you first got married, you know what you're talking about. You had all these favorite things. Like I had this big 24 by 36 inch poster of Yoda, right? <laughs> and I put it over the fireplace and Julie came in and was like, what is that, right? And immediately got swapped out for something else. So those things go under the bed, right? All your favorite stuff gets put in a little box. Well, but because you got kids now and you got cats and you got to have make room for all their stuff. And so all your favorite stuff you have to pack up and hide under the bed to make room for the kids' stuff. And now you have to... <laughs> She's left. Not from experience, trust me. And you just start stacking up boxes around the house because you don't got room for them anywhere else because all the closets are full. And so, and every corner of your house has got stuff. And I mean, you don't got room in the garage anymore. And you feel like, man, this house has really shrunk. And then they're like, somewhere in the midst of that, there was Jesus. And you're like, what happened to him? I, I know he was here. What box did we put him in? Because you've just been packing stuff up like crazy. You don't remember. And then you're like, oh, no, I hope it wasn't the one we just donated to Goodwill. And, of course, I'm speaking sort of spiritually. and right. But this is how... When it talks about every heart preparing him room, why we, we need to do this and why we need to continuously do this. Because our lives get filled up with so many things, so many great things. Like preparing for the holidays or spending time with your family or your kids growing up to be adults. Right? But then it also gets filled up with so much busyness and so much work. That even though we had made room for Jesus... Right? We let him in. We opened up the front door. He came into our lives. We gave our lives to Jesus. We got him now covered up with boxes and Christmas ornaments and all this stuff we took out of the attic so that we could decorate the house for the holidays and whatever. And he's been pushed back into a corner. And maybe we, he, we even had to tell him to step out. You know, can you just step outside for a second while we, while we do this? And then we forgot. All right. And what does our life look like then? 
I mean, if, we, if that's how we prepare for the holidays where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, what does that show us how we're going to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus? If we get so busy, we just pay no attention and we can't even sit down and relax and enjoy the blessings and the gifts that God's given us. Let me give you another illustration. You know that verse in Revelation that's usually quoted out of context from Revelation chapter 3? It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You'll hear it quoted a lot. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You know that verse? You know that's not being told to non-Christians, right? That's a verse that's being told, spoken to by Jesus to a church. Right? The church of Laodicea. The last letter in the letters in the book of Revelation. Right? So that's, that's Jesus said that to a church. A professing group of believers in Laodicea. It wasn't told to the pagan idol worshipers in Laodicea, but to the church. And he says that they were neither hot nor cold, but they were lukewarm. And he wanted to spit them out of his mouth, right? And you've probably heard it taught, and I'm not here to go through the theology of, of you know, that specific letter, but you've probably heard it taught, oh, you want to be hot. You want to be on fire for God. You don't, you don't, don't be lukewarm. You're going to be on fire. But remember, Jesus said, I would rather you be hot or cold. Then you're like, well, wait a minute. If, if hot's being on fire for God, then cold is the opposite, right? Why would he rather have us be cold? Because that's not what he's talking about. That's <laughs> not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, is that there is a purpose for both. And in Laodicea, they understood this because they had like the hot springs or whatever they had in Laodicea. So this cold mountain water, refreshing cold water, would come down from the mountains and then come into these hot springs or these thermal areas where they would heat up and they'd become therapeutic. It's like, you know, in a hot tub or even better than that because it's natural spring, these hot springs that you could go bathe in. So the hot water was therapeutic. The cold water was refreshing. Both had a purpose. But what didn't really have a purpose was the lukewarm water that came out of it. Because when it exited the hot springs and ran into the ocean, it was just lukewarm. It, it wasn't refreshing and cold. You wouldn't want to drink it because it just made you vomit. That's the only thing it was good for. The doctors use it to induce vomiting. It wasn't therapeutic like the hot. It wasn't refreshing like the cold. It just induced vomiting. So Jesus is telling the church, he's like, you guys right now are inducing vomiting. That's, a, you know, that's not a compliment you want to hear from Jesus, just in case you were wondering. But he says, I would rather have you be therapeutic. I would rather have you be refreshing than induce vomiting, right? Makes sense. I would rather be therapeutic or refreshing than making people vomit myself. Right? Lukewarm doesn't do anyone good. Right? And they thought, and these Christians and this church thought they had it all because they were incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy. Probably the wealthiest church on that whole postal route that Jesus wrote letters to there in Revelation. But Jesus tells them, listen, listen, you got all your riches and you got all your wealth, but 
ultimately what you are is wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what you are. And why? I mean, they're, they're a church. Why? Well, it was real simple, right? Because their wealth and their riches and their everything had, had nothing, right? The actual, their actual wealth was determined by their righteousness through Christ, and they hadn't made room for Jesus. They hadn't made room for him. Somehow in the hustle and the bustle of the church and in the growth of the church and the church being this big, wealthy church and then the lives of all these believers that had grown up were wealthy, Jesus was there. He must have been there when it started, right? Look how the church growed, grew, sorry. Don't jump on me, English teachers, right? But, but now in the midst of all this, Jesus got put outside, Jesus was no longer in the church. That's why Jesus tell them, tells them, hey, I stand outside and knock, and if you would just let me in, I would eat with you and you would eat with me. They've made no room. They've prepared, right? Their hearts are not prepared for Jesus. So their condemnation in this letter, when Jesus writes to them, has to do with their sanctification and their surrender to Jesus. It has to do with their walk with Jesus. He says, listen, you need to surrender fully to Jesus. You need to prepare me room. It's not just a one-time thing. Right? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That church had gained the whole world. But he's like, it's not really profitable for you. We become lukewarm when we become stagnant. We become lukewarm, right, when we don't make room for Jesus. Right? When we're tepid and we don't have a purpose now. So for us as believers... We shouldn't just prepare for Christmas once a year. We don't just teach Christmas once a year. We should be ready for Christ all year. Every morning when we wake, every day that we take breath, we need to prepare him room. Because if we don't, Satan's going to come in and try to close that door. He's going to come in and try to make your life busy. He's going to come in and try to get you looking other ways and confuse you and deceive you so that you just forgot about it. And it wasn't intentional. You weren't trying to leave Jesus out. You weren't trying not to prepare a room. It just, you know, wow, you know, things. I'm just juggling so much and so much is going on. Jesus is like, listen, prepare me room. Everything will go a lot easier. Just prepare me some room. Let me in. Prepare me room. It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus was born. And that was a struggle then and it's a struggle today. It hasn't changed. It's our biggest struggle as Christians probably. It's to give our lives fully to Jesus and every day prepare him room to be the prominent thing in our life that we follow. Right? We have problems finding a space for Jesus to occupy. <laughs> 
because we fill our lives with so much non-essential stuff. So ask yourself this question. Is there room for Jesus in your daily life? Right? Is there room for Jesus in the life that he has blessed you with? Is there room for Jesus in the home that he has blessed you with? Is there room for Jesus? I mean, no matter how cramped the home is, I don't care, right? It could be a small house, a big house. You can have it full of everything. It doesn't really matter. What matters is, is, is there room for Jesus in there, right? Is there space for him in your heart? You let him in your heart, he's still there. The spirit of God's still working within you. Is he in a little cramped corner now? Because you've covered him up with all the everything that else that's going on? Or are you letting him be the ruler of it? There needs to be. Even more so as the day approaches, there needs to be. Because you're a light out there in the darkness. And you're a picture of Christ to those who are looking for Christ. You're a picture of hope to those that are looking for hope. And you can point people to Jesus. But if ultimately you haven't prepared him room, then what kind of example are you setting that other people are following? Right? There's a needs to be. He needs to be first and foremost in your life. He's not going to stand for gathering dust in the corner. Got it? He doesn't want to be there. Right? He wants your life fully submitted to him and fully living for him. Because he was born to set you free. Right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us for a short time so that we might become children of God and dwell with him eternally. That's how great his love for you is for you. That's the true meaning of Christmas. Right? For the wages of sin and death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we need to let every heart prepare him room. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word, and I pray, Lord, that you just continue to work this out. Let, let us prepare our hearts daily, Lord, for you, so that you can be the king of our life, that you can be the Lord of our life, and that we will follow you in everything that we do and every step that we take. Yes, life is busy and it's chaotic and it's crazy and there's lots of things going on and it's a lot of great things and there's a lot of things that we're involved with and there are a lot of great things that we're involved with and we don't necessarily need to turn all this off or quit doing it, we just need to put you first. And not that these other things crowd you out. So I pray, Lord, that we continue to do that. And I thank you, Lord, for your spirit that's within us that reminds us that we were purchased with a price. Yes, we have freedom but freedom doesn't come free. But Christ set us free. He paid the price for us so that we could be righteous through him. Don't let us lose sight of that. Especially during Christmas time, during the holidays, Lord, let us rejoice in this. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.